The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading comes to us from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them, the chief priests, scribes, and elders, in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people for they perceived that they had told that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. You thought it was a win-win situation. You and your wife are going to be gone for a year on assignment across the country. And instead of placing, uh, or instead of having your house sit empty until you get back for a year, why not rent it to someone on VRBO or Airbnb, Right? The risk of a flooding basement or frozen pipes, it's lessened. And hey, the house gets to be enjoyed instead of sitting dormant for 12 months long. Win-win. Then you get a text from a neighbor. It's a little cryptic and it says something like, when are you guys getting back? Things just aren't the same without you. A few weeks pass and about 2 a.m. you get a call from the Brown County Sheriff's Department. I received a call about a disturbance at your residence, a report of extremely loud music, multiple cars parked on the lawn, and a backyard treehouse in flames. (laughs) You quickly call a trusted friend from church. Can you see what's going on over at our place? And within an hour, they call back to say, I'm in the ER, I'm getting stitches, I got a knife wound. They've taken over your place. These are some rough folks. The next day, you call an elder and a deacon from All Saints. The elder and the deacon who do CrossFit and concealed carry. (laughs) And they agree to go together to your house. But this time, they don't call you back. The sheriff does. He tells you one of your elders is in critical condition after a skull fracture. 
and the deacon was found shot to death on your front lawn. What in the world would prompt anyone to make the next phone call? Son, it's time. I need you over at the house. This is a question I've been asking this week as I hear Jesus' parable in Mark 12. A parable being told off the lips of the beloved son. The one who entered into Jerusalem. The one who entered into the temple. The one who had heard, save us, Hosanna, God, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was the one who was about to be rejected and killed. It might seem cruel of a father to send his son into a situation like that. Most parables of Jesus were cautioned in seminary not to interpret these parables as direct allegory, meaning this means exactly this and this person represents exactly that. It's what goes wrong when people try to interpret the book of Revelation as direct allegory. Things go wonky. You have to be more impressionistic with these genres. But this one, this story is different from Jesus's other parables because it's much more pointed. It's more clearly identifying the message, the messenger and the audience. I'll give you the cast of characters playing the role of the vineyard owner is God the father. Playing the role of the tenant farmers is the temple leaders, the religious shepherds. Playing the role of the servants are the prophets that came before Jesus, including John the Baptist. Playing the role of the beloved son is the son with whom God is well pleased. And playing the role of the vineyard is us, Israel, the church, the people of God. The son in last week's passage was asked by the religious leaders, the tenant farmers, what gives you the right to step into our house, into our temple and take over? And the son refuses to answer them because the tenant farmers refuse to answer his question, his question of, well, who do you say that I am? But he does answer their question, not directly, but with this story. He says, I'm the son coming back to take back what's rightfully my father's, but not before you reject me, you lay hands on me and you kill me. Mark 12 is a story that's all about rejection. How does a loving father willingly hand over his beloved son, his only beloved son, knowing he's not only going to be rejected, but killed? How does an obedient son determinedly face his executioners, knowing what they're doing is dead wrong? And how do we respond to this story in light of our own stories of rejection? Church, vineyard, people of God. The Gospel of Mark, if you remember, was originally written to the persecuted church in Rome. You've got to remember that. Because instead of the good news of King Jesus' salvation being warmly received, it was instead a threat to King Nero's power. Christianity was widely rejected. Christians were being tortured, crucified, and torched. That's who's hearing this story. We may not understand that kind of rejection of our faith. 
But we can understand rejection on a smaller scale, can't we? I ask you some questions. How well received in this culture is the Bible's claim that God was the assigner of male and female before birth? How accepted is the Bible's claim that marriage was created to be between a man and a woman? How embraced is the Bible's claim that all of life, including unborn life, is holy in our culture? Is that being accepted or rejected? I want to go even more personal. Of the handful of people you've invited to join you at church on a Sunday, how many have come? None. Maybe one because you wanted, they wanted to get you off their back. Of the family members or friends or neighbors you've shared Jesus' love for you with, how many have responded with, He sounds amazing. Would you mind taking a little more time with me to tell me how I might know Jesus better? Rejection is painful. It's putting yourself out there only to be assigned the category of freak, narrow-minded, evangelical. Rejection is not only painful, but it's discouraging. Where you want to throw up your hands and just, you know what, it's not worth it. Or just give up, give in to the culture. You win, you win. So how does Mark 12 encourage us to think about rejection? It's this. Friends, Jesus' rejection is the final fitting piece to the kingdom God is building. His rejection is the final fitting piece to the kingdom God's building. And if that's the case, then we have to accept rejection as part of our kingdom labor. I want to look at three things about rejection this morning. And the first is this. Rejection, friends, is to be expected. See this in verses 1 to 5. Whenever you're doing kingdom of God work, you can expect rejection. Why? Why? Because the first way in you, which you bring about a new kingdom is by tearing down an old one. What is the old kingdom going down? It's the kingdom of this world, which Mark says in an earlier parable is fixed on the cares of now, the emptiness of riches and the desires for things more than God. That's the kingdom that's being torn down. And that's precisely the reaction of the tenant farmers, the religious leaders of the day. They're rejecting anything that would threaten their man-made kingdom. They've got power over people. They've got comfort in their positions. They've been given this amazing place to rule over the temple. And anyone who would threaten to take their man-made kingdom away could expect to be rejected. Enter the prophets, the servants of God, each with a message to the leaders to ask, where is the fruit of this vineyard, this people? Where is the fruit of showing to the world how loving, gracious, kind, and merciful God is? Where's the fruit? Where's the fruit of loving the nations with the love, grace, kindness, and mercy of God? He's built this for you. Are you sharing it with others? That's what the servants are asking for the fruit. And what would happen to the servant? Rejection. 
They were either abused, shamed, or killed altogether. Friends, the trail of blood precedes the king's building project. But it also follows after the king lays the foundation. Prophets beforehand, martyrs afterwards. It's the pattern of kingdom building. Just read the book of Acts and you'll see the pattern. Wherever you find kingdom produce, you're going to always find kingdom persecution. But here's what we tend to believe. We tend to believe rejection is an exception, not the expectation. We think it's weird that people would reject us. That's not what the Bible says. We were in our Bible study, uh, our Lenten Bible study the other day, and we were talking about wins that we had celebrated in our lives, things we, we, we experienced as a win in our life. And one participant was brave enough to announce that he was the winner of a Magic the Gathering tournament. <laughs> and I definitely, like, teased him and gave him a pretty hard time about that. But it was later in the study as we were talking about our reluctance in publicly declaring our praise of what Christ has done for us, he says, that's what it's become for me. I get the same reaction about Christ as winning a Magic the Gathering tournament. So I back off. I tone down. I keep quiet. Friends, if our lives are about kingdom-building work, And what if, what if you lived as if rejection was the norm? Rejection is the norm rather than the exception. Jesus has given plenty of expectation of this to us. It's not going to be well received most of the time. Shouldn't we consider rejection maybe an indication that we're working in the right direction? We don't want to be rejected for being jerks, okay? But we are bringing an offensive message. We are living a lifestyle that's subject to ridicule and mockery. Stop fearing, like the religious leaders did, the rejection of man. Stop. You hold the building permit of Christ the King. (laughs) He told you, expect to be rejected. Expect it. Where, might I ask, are you fearing rejection today? Where are you afraid of it? And how is that fear, maybe the remnant of your own kingdom of self you want preserved? And when you are rejected for a kingdom-building work, Do you believe then that God's displeased with you? Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I didn't say it right. (laughs) No. Rejection is expected. God is not displeased with you. There could be nothing further from the truth. Rejection is not only to be expected. Rejection has a reward. See this in verses 6 to 8. The vineyard father in the story He believes the beloved son, maybe he won't be rejected. 
And to be clear, this is where we have to be careful with like allegory and parable because God the Father knew the religious leadership of the day would not respect his son. But there's still a sentiment here that says, surely by sending my son who pretty much owns this place, it will convince them of my love for the vineyard, for these people who are mine. But what do you see in the tenant's response? You see a greed to be God, a greediness to be God. This is the one who's going to be rewarded, the vineyard. This is the heir if the father kicks off. If we kill him, guess what? It's ours. But little do they know the love of the king whose plan it was to die for a sinful people, whose plan it was to allow himself to be killed in order to reward sinners with a restored relationship to God, to share his inheritance with anyone who rejected him and admitted to it. Their logic, the tenant's logic, was to eliminate God from the picture in order to become the heir. But God's love and logic was for himself to be eliminated in order to share his inheritance, not only with his vineyard Israel, but to extend that inheritance to the rest of the world. This is our God who doesn't see rejection as an end, but as a bitter means to a better end prodigal son in Luke 15. That's an example of a reward found at the end of rejection. This prodigal son, he wasted all his father's inheritance. He wished his dad dead by taking his dad's reward while his dad was still living, taking the inheritance while dad's still alive. But the father waited for his son to see what he had done. For his son to return with nothing but his guilt over what he did. And when the son who rejected the father turned back toward home, what does the father do? He runs after him and he rewards him with a feast. Jesus knew he was going to be rejected by people. He knew he was going to hear the boos and the hisses and the rejection from the crowd shouting, crucify. They were shouting, Hosanna, save us God today. But he knew that would be turned into rejecting words like save yourself, you pathetic loser. But he believed in a God of love who could take the sting of a deadly rejection and turn it into an opportunity to share inheritance. Friends, I want to ask, who is rejecting you today? Is it the world? Is there something about the world that's rejecting you? Is it a family member or a friend that's rejecting you? Is it the devil that's rejecting you? And how might you use that rejection to think in terms of reward? Jesus says when an enemy slaps you, what are you called to do? Turn the other cheek. Why? To reward rejection with love. Chris Rock actually did a pretty decent job of that in the Oscars a few weeks ago. When Will Smith smacked him, he didn't retaliate. He rewarded the slap with respect. Are your kids, for example, disrespecting you? And is it your tendency to power up and put them in their little place? 
Or could their rejection of you be an opportunity for you to reward their rejection with your love? I'm not saying it doesn't hurt to be rejected. But what hurts us is when we reject back the rejecter. Jesus didn't do that. He left that up to his father. He entrusted himself when he was reviled, when he was rejected, First Peter said, to the one who would judge justly. And so for you, where might rejection for you be an opportunity for you to extend reward to someone? How else might we review rejection as a part of our kingdom building? It's to be expected. It has a reward. And finally, rejection is our acceptance. Look with me at the last few verses, 9 to 11. Jesus, he asked the religious leaders this question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Notice it's not the son he's asking about. It's the father's response here. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Because about 40 years from standing at that very place in the temple, the walls and the ceiling of that physical temple are going to be destroyed. The Sanhedrin, the big three leaders, are going to be out of a job and their kingdom of this world position is going to be eliminated. But what else does the father do? He gives the vineyard to others. Jesus goes on to quote Psalm 118, the psalm Amy read for us this morning, the psalm famous for including the Palm Sunday line, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I'm going to ask that you turn to that in your worship guide for a second this morning. He says, in essence, to these powerful men standing in a temple that's not quite finished, Standing in the place where God and man's relationship was to be made right through sacrifice. He says this from Psalm 118. The stone that you are rejecting in finishing this building, this work of God, will be the perfect shape finishing what God started. Friends, no one had any idea that beloved son and sacrificial lamb were in the same descriptor for Jesus. Until you read Psalm 118 in light of the cross. It's a psalm that starts with these phrases. Let the vineyard Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of the priests say, His steadfast love endures forever. And then let anyone who fears the Lord, maybe even including a Roman soldier standing before the dead body of Jesus, say, His steadfast love endures forever. The Lord answered our hosannas, our save me God cries with what you see in Psalm 118. He set us free. You see the protection that's found in Psalm 118 through the cross. What can man do to me anymore? I shall not die but live. You see the cross's invitation. Open to me the gates of righteousness and I shall walk through it 
There it is. And friends, a phrase that you see on the tops of people's doorways sometimes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's about the cross. It's about the cross. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the day. Let us rejoice and be glad in what he's done for us. All of these familiar verses lead up to an obscure verse that I'm guessing none of us would find at Hobby Lobby to put above our mantles. And it's at the end of verse 27. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords. Up to the horns of the altar goes the sacrifice. Jesus' rejection from man would move him to becoming the only acceptable sacrifice to God. They would lay their hands on him. They would bind him like an animal. They would parade him through the streets. They would cut him open and watch him bleed. Their rejection of him, rejection he expected, as he had his eyes on the joy set before him, the reward set before him, would lead him up to the horns of the altar of the cross, where the punishment for our rejection of God would be paid, and where the reward of God's grace would be given to Christ and shared with us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bind the sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar where by our rejection and by his wounds we would be healed. His rejection is our acceptance. Friends, see any rejection that you face in the work of building Christ's kingdom as an opportunity to say, rejection was what God used to set me free. May our smaller rejections experienced in kingdom building lead us to the glory of sharing in Christ's sufferings. Rejection is remarkable in our eyes because it leads to our being accepted and acceptable to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning even that your word would not allow any fence-sitters. We either accept you or reject you. There's no middle. And so, Father, we pray that we would be accepting of our sacrifice. That we would be accepting of the rejection that he received so that we could be accepted. Because, Father, if we reject that sacrifice, it will be us who will be rejected. And so, Father, give us eyes to see, faith to understand that he is our acceptable sacrifice. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.